I love America, and I love the 4th of July. I love everything about the 4th, picnics and parades, baseball and fireworks on the National Mall synchronized with the 1812 Overture. Though I don't exactly understand why we choose to celebrate our independence by listening to an overture written to celebrate the victory of the Russians over our allies, the French, who helped us to defeat the British a few decades later. It must be that we just like a lot of noise. I love the fourth and I love America. So it seems appropriate to recognize the 4th of July by reading portions of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invents a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. This amazing document announced to the world that the 13 British colonies in the New World were now independent and then eloquently expressed the reasons why. The declaration was drafted by Thomas Jefferson between June 11th and June 28th, 1776 edited by Benjamin Franklin, and then adopted and signed 239 years ago yesterday in Independence Hall. In exalted and unforgettable phrases, it expressed the convictions of the minds and hearts of the American people. Even though the ideal of individual liberty had already been expressed by John, Knox, John Locke and the continental philosophers, it summarized the political principles in self-evident truths and set forth a list of grievances against the king in order to justify before the world breaking ties between the colonies and their mother country. 
The document was signed by delegates elected by the 13 colonial assemblies and sent to Philadelphia to meet at the Continental Congress. John Adams' signature is there in his neat, legible hand. John Hancock signed boldly, of course. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, the Presbyterian physician, are there. And if you look carefully in the next to last column, about two-thirds of the way down, you'll see the signature of John Witherspoon. I like Jefferson and Franklin and Adams, but my very favorite is Witherspoon. He was a Presbyterian minister, the president of the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton University, originally a thoroughly Presbyterian institution, the moderator of the First Presbyterian General Assembly, and the one that's depicted in our stained glass window. Winterspoon was the only clergy person to sign the declaration, and when he did, he said something about it being better to sign that glorious document and be hanged as a traitor than to die of old age. Thus, from Witherspoon to the present day, Presbyterians have been part of the American experiment and are importantly, and more importantly, precisely because of our theology, we have always regarded involvement in the body politic as a sacred duty. Americans have generally been a religious people, a people under God, and overwhelmingly Christian. Many of the 17th century settlers who founded their communities in America did so for religious reasons, and even more 18th century Americans saw their revolution in religious and largely biblical terms. For them, the revolution reflected their covenant with God, a war between God's elect and the British Antichrist. Jefferson, Paine, and deists and non-believers alike felt it necessary to invoke a religion to justify the revolution. The Declaration of Independence appeals to nature's God, the creator, the supreme judge of the world, and divine providence for approval, legitimacy, and protection. Even though the Constitution includes no such references, its writers also believed that the Republican government that they were creating could only last if it were rooted in morality and religion. A republic can only be supported by pure religion and austere morals, John Adams said, and George Washington agreed reasoned and experienced both forgive, forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. Fifty years after the Constitution was adopted, Alexis de Tocqueville reported that the Americans combined the notions of religion and liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive of one without the other. But in reality, America is a predominantly Christian nation with a secular government. 
The fact remains that the people who declared their independence in 1776 and 13 years later confirmed its ideals in a constitution could have created a Christian nation, but they didn't. Many of them and their families were Christians. Some were deists and some were not very orthodox and some didn't go to church at all, but the vast majority did. They had come from Christian nations in Europe, nations of state-supported and state-sponsored religion and churches, and they wanted none of it. Thomas Jefferson was the one who came up with the idea that there would be no state church in the new nation. He called it a fair experiment, and nobody thought it would work. Jefferson wanted a religiously neutral state and an atmosphere of religious liberty in which citizens would be free to choose and practice their religion or to abstain. An atmosphere in which churches would be on their own, without state support or interference. An atmosphere in which the state would not be able to force a particular religious position or practice on its people. This was the experiment of separation of church and state that defines us today. Nobody had ever tried it before. Everyone in history had simply assumed that a nation needed a religious underpinning, underpinning and religion required state sponsorship. As it ha has turned out, no one has ever done anything more helpful or more powerful for the cause of religion and the cause of freedom than creating a nation with religious liberty at its heart. Our Old Testament lesson this morning describes a new experiment for the people of Israel as well. The nation was now to be united under a single ruler, its shepherd king. Some longed for the day and some believed that it would never work because Yahweh was the only king that should ever reign over Israel. But David was chosen to be the shepherd of a nation that belonged to God in accordance with the will of God. His rule was to reflect loving kindness, caring and leading, not bullying or oppressing his people. David's story was the hope for Israel's future. It was the story of God's vision of a new relationship with Israel reflected in this individual, under whose leadership the nation under God would grow and prosper. As king, he acknowledged God's ultimate rule and God's vision. He could, his commitment to God epitomized the best dimension of his kingship, his relationship with Yahweh, which undergirded all that he did. Yet in the narratives in 2 Samuel, it, we can see that it's clear that David's success would be because God was with him, not because of some particular preference that God had for David or for Jerusalem. The covenant that David made with God reflects God's law, which welcomes the stranger with love 
feeds and clothes them and acts with justice toward the weakest and most marginalized in the community. The founders of our country also embraced these bold concepts and values in a vision of a spiritually enlightened utopia where freedom of thought, education of the masses, and scientific advancement would replace the darkness of outdated religious superstition. The Founding Fathers didn't want just to be free from foreign rule. They also aspired to create a new way of being community. They wanted to build a nation that would be more equitable and safeguarded against any one person getting too much power and influence. No country is perfect or unambiguous, and the United States is no exception. We have high ideals punctuated by some dismal realities. We have proclaimed the equality of humankind and yet defined some persons as non-human, unworthy of self-determination, equality, or loving relationships. We have affirmed the quest for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and at the same time, condemned some people based on the, their realities of economics, ethnicity, or sexuality to lives of misery, duplicity, and limitation. I love America and what it declares it stands for, but I don't worship America. I worship God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made known to me in Jesus Christ. I celebrate when the love of God includes our enemies and all the citizens of the world, and when it embraces the poor as well as the wealthy, the forgotten as well as the privileged. My heart swells when God's presence and action are understood in terms of love and intentionally reflected in the actions of courts and Congress alike. There are no outsiders to God's love in a nation under God. God loves the United States, but God loves all the people of this world as well. So with our blessing as a nation comes even greater responsibility. America is part of God's expanded vision, just as King David was and today we give thanks and recommit ourselves to being all that God has created us to be as individuals and as a nation. May we be counted among those who keep the faith and the possibility of a new future alive in the world around us. Even as so many of us enjoy the stunning riches and excesses of American culture, May we, as citizens of the kingdom of God, speak and act for equality and peace in such ways that the dominant society regards us as subversive. May we love our country with eyes wide open, as suggested by the Reverend Dr. Peter Gomes in a sermon on patriotism. I love my country too much to see it complicit in its own worst stereotype, bullying, alienating allies, making up rules as it goes.
so, as a nation under God, how should we love America? With eyes wide open, with an informed mind, with a holy impatience that wants this nation always to be as good as its own best values, with the courage to care and discuss and participate and vote, and with the vision of God, the compassion of Christ, and the patriot's dream that sees beyond the years, her alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. May it be so. Amen.